Good morning. So good to be here with you because it's good to be anywhere. <clears throat> Just a couple things to give you context. Um, they only let me speak on occasions, and this is one of them. Um, and this may be the last one, no matter what. <laughs> um, uh, just so you know, I'm really way more comfortable speaking to high school kids than adults. Uh, and so that's just the context for how I speak. So if you think, gosh, he's so juvenile, well, okay. Uh, <clears throat> and, and, you know, a lot of people are intimidated by speaking to high school kids. I am not because I simply do not know what they're talking about most of the time. It's one of the reasons why I don't mind speaking to ladies groups. <laughs> so, um, <clears throat> come on. Yeah. See, with high school kids, you, I can convince myself that I'm smarter than them. With you guys, I can't do that. I mean, I'm pretty sure that in elementary school, we would not have been at the same reading circle together. So, you know, when I'm talking to high school guys, I mean, let's face it, the first time I discovered that a, a 10th grade guy thought that the international dateline was the phone version of Match.com, I kind of knew, okay, I think I am smarter than them. <laughs> Another piece of context is Mike said to you guys last week that this is the last time I'm speaking in big church. Uh, I will be doing a, 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 a marriage thing in the spring, but uh, this is my last message here. And for some people, you're sad, but for Mike, he has to be thrilled. <laughs> I mean, for 25 years, I have put Mike through a lot. As Mike has slid down the banister, banister of ministry life, I have been the splinter. And, uh, and so, you know, Mike told you last week that I assured him that I was not going to make fun of him this week, and I am not. And there's a good reason for that. The last time I spoke was uh, September of last year, and right afterwards, I started getting these kinds of emails from careerbliss.com. <clears throat> uh, now, you can't, just reading small, but like that first one's an opportunity in San Francisco. The second one is to be an Uber driver. <clears throat> I don't know how Mike figured out how to give my name to this, but he did, and so that threat was duly noted, and so I'm going to be nice from this point on. Well, the topic this morning is things I don't like and other things you probably don't care about. And, uh, and I, you know, you saw the video lead in, and I have just pages of things that I don't like because I'm training to be a crotchety old man. And, uh, you know, like things like this. Why do they still make styrofoam coolers? Um, is that, I mean, I think it's just a place that tortures all of us because all of us know what it's like when you buy one of those cheap styrofoam coolers, you put it in your car, and for the first 10 minutes, you're good. And then you start to hear this. And you're kind of like, okay. And then, and then 10 minutes later, it's like, 30 minutes in, it's like, and you're swiping back there and whacking your kids and everything. And it's always not within your reach or anything like that. It's just one of those things. Here's another one of the things that is on my list. People who do not drive the posted speed limit. Can I get an amen? <laughs> I'm not asking you to speed I know that spirit control begins in our mind and the last place it reaches is our right foot. I understand that, all right? I'm just saying that if a road has been highly qualified by engineers to determine that we could navigate it at 45 miles per hour, then you just should drive 45 miles an hour. I heard a comedian years ago saying that every car should be equipped with a suction dart gun and, that, and it would have a flag on there that said stupid. And if so if somebody did something dumb, you're allowed to shoot their car and if they saw three of those stuck to the car, the police would immediately just pull them over and give them a ticket. And I just think that's a great idea. Here's another one I don't like, this statement. There are no dumb questions. Honestly, honestly, have you watched the news? There are a lot of dumb questions, all right? 
Now, most of you know that my main role here at, uh, at RBC is in counseling, and uh, the majority of the counseling that I do is with marriages. And so as I was preparing and thinking about the last time I would speak at Reston Bible Church, it was a pretty easy call for me that this message would be about relationships because it's been uh, something I've been passionate about for a long time. I moved into the role, I was the worship leader here for 10 years and then moved in the role of counseling about uh, 14 years ago, 14 and a half years ago. And so I knew today it would have to be uh, about marriage and about relationships because it's just such an important thing. You know, if it's true, and I believe it is, that roughly 40% of all marriages end in divorce, which is, when we say 40%, that just feels like a, a number out there, which represents over 830,000 divorces a year in the United States. If that's true, and if it's true that the uh, statistics related to evangelical believers, it's not all that different, then I think we can assume that at Reston Bible Church, there's a number of marriages, relationships that are struggling. And so that's one of the reasons why I just feel so compelled to go down this road this morning. If you are not married, I'm going to ask you to not tune me out. Stay with me. Uh, a couple of things. Some of the things that we'll talk about this morning uh, will be applicable just in relationships in general. But your role, I mean, you may someday be married, but your role, even as someone who is not married, in Christ, we walk with people. And certainly you will know of people who could benefit from godly counsel and you could know people, perhaps a coworker or a sibling or a parent that might benefit. So, so stay with me on this thing. So let's pray and then we're going to dive in together. Gracious Father, we do thank you that your word is truth and we have the opportunity to be guided by it because it is you speaking to us in such a powerful way. And so, Father, as we would spend this time today, and Lord, we've already been brought into your presence, Lord, the music and the things that were shared uh, during our time of communion to just point us to you. Father, we pray that we would continue in that way and that we would see you do great and mighty things that we know not of. And so we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, things I don't like and other things you probably don't care about. As it relates to uh, marriage, here's my first statement. I cannot stand this statement. If mama ain't happy, nobody's happy. Now, I almost set you up by having you, like, you know, if you, if you believe this, raise your hand. And I thought, no, that would be cruel. Okay, I wasn't going to do that. Uh, but I hear that statement, and I know it's meant to be funny, but the truth is, is that a lot of you know, live with, or are someone who believes that statement. It's kind of up there with the uh, happy wife, happy life thing that I don't like. And my point is not to pick on women in this because I've met a boatload of men who believe that the job description of everybody who lives with them is to cater to all their needs and reinforce the idea that they're the center of the universe. There are many people, though, that I firmly believe that they take life and they look it through the lens of everything that I want and everything that matters to me should matter to everybody else. And that's not what we've been called to. Please show me a scripture that supports that thought because I will show you a list of them that do not. And so we're going to start there and we're going to go to a passage. So if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to go to Romans chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, use your iPad or your iPhone. If you have the Dead Sea Scrolls, it's pot seven. Just keep moving with me, okay? <clears throat> but before we get to Romans 15, what we're going to look at, I'm going to give you just a little bit of lead in what's happening before we get there. In chapter 14, Paul is addressing an issue that's come up and it has to do uh, with freedom within the church. And so he's talking uh, to the people there about how to handle issues of consciousness, of, of the conscious, and principles about Christian liberty. And what's taking place is that there's a debate about uh, meat that was offered to idols. That some people had a clear conscience and believed that this meat, and many people believed it was probably the best meat in the market, it was fine because the idols really didn't mean anything, it was false, that it was fine for them to eat that meat. 
Other people, for conscience sake, felt like they could not eat the, that meat because of the fact that it had been offered to idols. And so Paul's trying to take them up to a higher place about recognizing, meeting the needs of the other person. That is not being about them, but even being sensitive to perhaps those who might be weaker in their view of things and, and, and being called into that. And so he culminates sort of the thought in chapter 14 where he says in verse 20, do not destroy the works of God for the sake of food. So after we do that, now we get to Romans chapter 15 and what he has to say there. He says, when then who are strong ought to bear with the the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Christ did not live to please himself. That was the essence of what he did the entire time he was on the earth. In Matthew, he says, for the Son of God did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Go to Philippians chapter two with me. If you've ever sat through premarital counseling with me, and for most people in any kind of marriage counseling, you will recall that this is a verse that we, or this section of scripture is something that we look at every single time because my opinion is it lays such a foundation for understanding what we've been called to do in our marriages. Philippians chapter two, beginning in verse one, it says, therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the spirit, if any affection and, mer- affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Then he says this, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. The word there, nothing, is translated in the Greek to be nothing. That's what it means, all right? Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or empty conceit, but in lowliness lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Then if you skip down to verse five, he's gonna say this. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And if you were to continue to read, you would see where he's painting this picture of Jesus Christ who had his position in glory with the Father, a place that he absolutely deserved, and he willingly sets that aside. He's still fully God, but he comes to earth, the advent we're talking about, he comes to earth and he dies at the hands of his creation. And so he's saying, let this mind be in you, which is a mind of death that I am choosing to set aside my way for other people. In, in John chapter 13, why did Christ wash the disciples' feet? After he washes their feet, he says to them, you call me teacher and master and you do well to call me that because that's who he was. But he says, what I've done here is an example to be followed. And I don't believe his point was to go out and wash people's feet, although that might be a good thing. His point was, I am creator God kneeling at the feet of my creation, humbly washing their feet and demonstrating this life of we give our lives away. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. It's that picture over and over in the life of Christ that we're to emulate. And so this thought that life is around me and it matters to me and everybody should get in line with me is not what we've been called to do as believers. In my office, I've heard people have um, discussions about finance. Discussion is the NIV word for argument. Uh, 
uh, about sexual intimacy, division of labor, family vacations, who controls the remote. And almost every time you look at the statistics of why people's marriages or their relationships broke up, and if you were to find out exactly what they said, this is why we couldn't get along, this is what we argued about, if you were to pull the curtain back, what you'd find is because people just wanted their way. The issue about money generally comes down to one person came from a family where saving money is a huge value. The other person comes from a family where enjoying your money is a huge value. And so now you have competing values now under the same roof and people turn those values or those preferences into things to draw a, a line in the sand over. And they will talk and talk about it and then they get to arguing. And people don't argue just to argue unless they're lawyers, right? They argue because they believe their point is correct and they will keep going at it with the belief that if you will just see it and hear me, you'll understand how right I am. And eventually the line gets drawn in the sand, the sand with this idea that if you don't come to my side, this is not tenable. And so they let the relationship go and it happens over and over in marriages where at the heart of that is I just want my way. And we've not been called to that in Christ. We've been called to give our lives away. We've been told over and over that we are to follow Christ and his example. And I am convinced that in marriage, if two people will make it their solemn goal to follow Christ in that way, to give themselves in that way, it's hard to imagine that that relationship would not thrive because it's so biblical and it's so God's design to follow through life in that way. So that's my first one. I don't like that. Here's my next one. Now, have you ever been in a situation where you're watching something old unfold and you're absolutely powerless to stop it? You hear someone talking and you kind of know this is where they're going and oh, I go, stop. Everything slows down. You're like, stop, like this. Well, years ago when we were at the old campus, uh, one of our former pastors, and this isn't why he's called a former pastor, but one of our former pastors thought it was a good idea on Mother's Day to stand all the moms in the auditorium to honor them. <clears throat> and so his plan was that he would just start having them sit down based on how old they were. And yeah, you already know how bad this is, right? <clears throat> so he starts off with, you know, if you're under 20, sit down, you know, and so the 20-year-olds and down, they sit down, you know. If you're between 20 and 25, sit down. And all of a sudden, there's this uneasiness because, you know, and I'm sitting on the front row, just done the opening music, and I'm like, stop, no, like this, you know, because, you know, he just hadn't dawned on him that he's getting to have all these women admit their age with at least within five years to the entire congregation and at that point we had the, a choir loft up there and the ladies are up in the choir and I remember this like these ladies are standing up and he says now all the ladies between 30 and 35 sit down this lady sits down and two other ladies go like this like <laughs> it was amazing <laughs> so yeah so for years we referred to that as the Mother's Day Massacre <laughs> Well, that's feeling, that like, no, that sort of thing is how I feel whenever I hear this next statement, and this is the statement. My kids are my life. When I hear that statement out of a married person, I want to go, no, stop. Let me tell you what we've been asked to do about children according to God's word. We are to train them. We're to protect them. We're to teach them. We're to discipline them. We're not to frustrate them, and we're to see them as a gift. We are never told to make them our greatest priority, ever. 
As a matter of fact, in the big picture, God is to be our greatest priority. But in the human picture, there's another priority, and I want us to go there. Because in Northern Virginia, as I watch people, and maybe it's the same way all around the United States, but I don't know what's going on all around the United States. But as I watch people here, in many ways, people consistently turn their children into idols where their lives revolve around their kids' activities and everything is sacrificed for them. And some of that is because I want to, you know, if my kids look good, I think I look good. I understand that. But let's talk about what the greatest priority is. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 5. I would think is a very familiar passage related to marriage that most of you would know. Ephesians 5, we get this section on marriage. And it says this. Husbands, Love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. In verse 32, it says this, after he said, Uh, this one section. He says, I speak a mystery, Christ and the church. If you've been around Reston Bible Church for many years, you've heard Mike Minner say this over and over. Whenever you see the word mystery in the Bible, it is a truth being revealed for the first time. And so as Paul's teaching, he's revealing something to us for us to understand about relationship. He is saying that from that point on, we should understand that the marriage relationship is the earthly model to understand the most important relationship, and that's the relationship between Jesus Christ and those who know him as their personal savior. And because of that, the marriage relationship has now moved up to be the top human relationship, to be valued in that light. And so if you're going to have a human relationship priority as a married person, it should be your spouse. That is our greatest priority. With each of my children, at some point in their lives, they came to me and they asked this question. Who do you love more, me or mommy? And I said, mommy, because I can make another one of you. <clears throat> uh, I probably didn't. No, I actually did say that. And <clears throat> the counseling's going really well. You might want to. <laughs> no, I would say to them, mommy. And it will always be mommy. And for your greatest benefit... You need to know I will always love mom more than I will love you because that's the greatest priority I have. A friend of mine had this plaque in his office when I served with him in in Florida. The plaque said this, the greatest gift a dad can give his children is to love their mom. And there's no doubt about that. The greatest security a child will ever know is to be firmly believing that mom and dad love each other and that they are the greatest priority in the home. When children believe they are number one, there is a greater likelihood for division between the parents. There's a greater chance the child grows up believing the world revolves around them. And that's not healthy. How many of you know a situation like this and perhaps you even lived a situation like this? 
the last child goes off to college and the parents divorce. What's the story there? Oftentimes the story is this. When children came along, they started putting all their energy and their time and their focus on these two little ones or the little ones in their home and they forgot to keep this. And so the last one leaves the home and now they're looking at each other saying, we don't even know each other. It's a misplaced priority. I tell couples this all the time. Our children are cute little thieves. And now that I'm a grandfather, oh my goodness, this grandchild thing, I have two granddaughters, it's amazing, you know. But I'm still called to make Melissa the top priority, humanly speaking, in my home. When Allie was just in elementary school, my youngest, um, one time she came home and she's a little bit miffed. They had a uh, comedian speak to the elementary school kids, which like, there's a job you want, you know. And, uh, and so evidently during the middle, in his presentation, he said something like this. When you were born, it was like you stuck a straw in the heads of your parents and began sucking the life out of them. I thought it was pretty funny. She didn't think it was very funny. <clears throat> For the well-being of your children, don't make them the center of your life. Your marriage, your spouse, they're to be the number one priority. Now let me just give a small caveat before I move on for this. There is a natural thing that I would think that would make it more likely that moms would make children their life more so than men. Uh, Men typically will struggle with making their careers their life. Uh, It's more likely that a mom will make her children her life. Uh, and the, the mom-child bond is a huge thing. You know, men typically say they would die for their wives. Women don't say they would die for their husbands. They say they would die for their children. It's a natural bond. I believe, though, sometimes women make children their life because the emotional needs that they have are no longer being met by their husband. And I am convinced that a woman, when she feels like her emotional needs are not being met, she is susceptible to look elsewhere for it. And children are one of the most natural places for her to now give her energy and time and love and attention to the little ones in her home or even the teenagers in her home. And so for us men, we need to be aware of our responsibility uh, that that we are to be used by the Lord to invest emotionally with our wives uh, as being caretakers of our home and leaders in our home. Okay. Here's the next one I don't like. It's the word busyness. A few weeks back, Aaron Osborne preached and uh, he mentioned about, uh, he was talking about rest and he mentioned about the pace of life in Northern Virginia. And when he said that, I was sitting over there and I thought back to just two weeks prior. On a Sunday, I'd had six counseling appointments back to back with couples. And the opening statement in every one of those counseling meetings, which is like what I typically do, I said, how was your week? Every couple gave the exact same one-word answer, busy. In Northern Virginia, it feels like sometimes that busyness is a badge of honor, that we look for ways to be busier and busier because we live a comparative life. And so if somebody else is doing this, we probably should be doing that. We all fall into it. I mean, let's face it. If somebody said to us, you know, yesterday I rolled out of bed at the crack of noon, I ate a couple Pop-Tarts. I was a little late to my two-hour shift at work. You know, we're going to judge those people and probably leave. You know. <laughs> but I don't hear stories like that. 
I hear people tell me stories about their life that just make me tired to listen to because they've added one thing upon another and upon another with the belief that we just keep going with it, keep going with it. Take your Bibles and go to Luke chapter 10. I want to talk a principle here with you. Luke chapter 10. Verse 38 says, Now it happened as they went that he entered a certain village, talking about Christ, and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his words. But Martha was distracted with much serving and she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. The context, what Christ is saying to Martha is that take the time and do what's more important. Those other things have to happen. Some of you, you know, you would say, men and women, that I'm wired as a Martha. I understand that. There are some people that are just doers. Um, my mom used to say, there's some people who will do, and there's some people who will let them, <laughs> you know. <clears throat> but here, he's making the point that, but Mary sat at his feet and listened. She was still. She took time to breathe. She took it in. And I think that practice of being able to say no and not taking on the next thing is a vital thing for us to learn in the environment in which all of us live. That the pace of Northern Virginia and what we put up with and what we are sometimes placed upon us, that learning to say, no, I'm not going to do that. I am going to achieve bandwidth in the life of my family is so vital. But we're always drawn back to greater speed will somehow help. On uh, October 1st, uh, the the uh, men's retreat uh, was winding down, and so I got on my motorcycle and I headed home. Uh, the plan was I had my trailer parked there attached to my truck. I was going to go home, put the bike up on the trailer, head to Tennessee. Melissa was flying into Knoxville from Florida that day. I was going to meet her at the airport, and we are going to head down and spend a few days riding the motorcycle in the Smoky uh, Mountains, something that we just thoroughly enjoy doing. So I leave uh, from, the, from the conference center there, and I'm on Lime Kiln Road, uh, a road that I've traveled many, many times on the motorcycle. And I, I'm going around a sharp curve, and I really wasn't going that fast. The car was coming from the other direction, and there was no center line. So the car hedged a little towards the center. It didn't come into my lane. When that happened, I overcorrected and went to the right and dropped off about three fo- uh, inches of asphalt onto the soft grass. And so what I did is what you should always do when you're, you know, getting ready to fall down. I accelerated and while I was sitting on top of 1,832 cc's of bike. And uh, that's the last thing I remember. Now, uh, I survived. Okay. <coughs> uh, my gold wing did not. Uh, and I didn't wake up to the paramedics were over me. But that story sounds like a lot of your lives. And mine as well. That things get out of control. And rather than throttling down... We accelerate. We take on more. Believing that somehow that's going to help the process. And it never helps the process. Rather than doing the important thing, we do everything. My last gripe. And my last gripe is a relational one as well, but it's not about husbands and wives. It's about the most important relationship. The relationship with Christ. 
And here's the statement I hear and I've heard for a long time. uh, And it's this, you have to be good to go to heaven. I am almost 60 years old. This is where you go, no way, you're almost 60. Okay. Um, In my 60 years, I cannot tell you how many times I've heard people say a statement like that or reference something along those lines that if I'm just good enough, maybe God will let me in. I have to be good enough. And I have often asked this question, how good do you have to be? How good? If goodness is a standard, how good? How many here, you don't, don't raise your hand, how many here would believe that you're better than Adolf Hitler? I would think most of us would kind of agree with that. How many of you believe you're better than former Today Show host Matt Lauer? I would still say most of us would do that. By raise of hand, how many of you would say that you're better than the person you're sitting next to? <laughs> Just kidding. Okay. But not, yeah. <clears throat> How many of you here believe you're better than Mike Minter? The rest in Bible church pope, huh? How many of you believe you're better than evangelist Billy Graham? You know, it's an interesting thing about this standard of goodness for heaven is that we always compare ourselves with people we believe are lower than us morally. We never compare with the people who are above us. And God's standard for going to heaven is not about goodness. He never says that. He never, ever says you have to be good to go to heaven. He says you have to be perfect to go to heaven, as perfect as he is. In Revelation, it says he can't even let one lie into his presence. And so his standard, again, is not goodness. His standard is perfect, and none of us are, and that's why we need a Savior. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Pete was referring to this earlier in our time of communion. For he, God, made him, Christ, the one who knew no sin, to become sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That is the great exchange. But it's clearly the most unfair trade ever. It makes no sense. Who would make that trade? We inherently know when something's a bad trade. We don't do it. My dad was a lifer in the army. He had a lot of interesting things about his life, a lot of interesting skills. And one of his skills was the ability to negotiate a car deal. Uh, I would go with him because it was great theater. It was just so much fun to watch as he went into his work. And I remember one day, uh, he decides that it's time to get rid of his old pickup truck and so we drive to this dealership and we drive onto their lot and he parks his truck and he walks over and I'm with him and he starts walking around this brand new pickup truck, just looking it over. And I look there and here comes this young salesman and I'm thinking, oh, he doesn't even know. <laughs> and he comes out there and like any good salesman, he gets my dad's name and over and over he's saying Mr. Goodnight in every way you can possibly say Mr. Goodnight as he tells us about all the features of this brand new truck. And after he'd gone on and on about the features, finally he said this to my dad. So, Mr. Goodnight, what would you like to do today? And my dad said, I am so glad you asked that question. I would like to trade my old truck over there for your new truck here, keys for keys, straight up. <laughs> and, and the salesman had like this nervous laugh. Like, you know, he's like, Mr. Goodnight, you, you, know, you know we can't do that. And my dad said, you asked me, so let's go from there. 
let, let's go from there always meant, why don't you just take me to the manager's office because I'm going to end up there anyway. But the truth is that the salesman recognized that was a bad deal. Nobody's going to do that. No one's going to trade an old truck for a brand new truck. We know when a trade is not good. You knew that in elementary school. When she tried to trade you her carrot sticks for your homemade chocolate chip cookies, you are not going to do that. And here's the trade presented to us. We get his righteousness and he took on our sin. Makes no sense. But that's what he did. And how is that transaction accomplished? How is it that we then can stand before God forgiven in the way that God designed and desired for us to be forgiven? It's when we receive the gift of eternal life found in Christ alone. In John chapter 1 verse 12 it says, As many as received him, to them gave he the power or the right to be called the children of God. And that comes by faith. The moment we place our trust in Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, a transaction takes place where we are moved from the kingdom of darkness where we live now into the kingdom of God's dear Son. And that happens by faith, trusting that Jesus Christ died on our behalf. He paid for everything we've ever done wrong, everything we've done in the past, everything we've done, we'll do today, everything we ever will do was paid for at Calvary's cross. Because when Christ died, all of our sin was in the future. He died for all of it. And the the great exchange for us is the opportunity by faith to put our trust in Jesus Christ as the one who did that for you. As you leave today, there's going to be a copy of this book handed out as you go through the door, one free for every family. And this book is called Saving Christmas. It's written by Mike Minner and Travis McShirley. Uh, Travis is on staff here. And Mike just wanted you to know, it'd be a great gift also to pick up a few copies of this at the bookstore for a reduced price and maybe give it to neighbors or, or friends. It'd be great for people who know Christ, for people who don't know Christ. Uh, he also wanted you to know that uh, it was written by he and Travis. And Travis wrote several of the tra- chapters, and he's just really pleased with what Travis did as well. Um, and so as you walk out, there's going to be one given free to each family. Now, say as you walk out, you see the people there, men and women, our ushers, ready to hand you a book. They hand you a book, you take the book, and then they look at you and they go, that'll be $10, please. You would start to go, wait, wait a minute. I, I thought Paul said they're going to be free. And so if I go out there, they're going to hand it to me for free. Oh, gosh, I must have misunderstood. And then you might say to them, oh, oh, I thought these were free. And they say, yeah, they're free. Ten bucks, please. Well, your mind would start to blow up because everybody knows you don't pay for something that's free. If they say to you, that will be five cents, you're now getting a great deal on Mike Minter and Travis McShirley's book, but you're still paying for it, even if it's just five cents. It's only a gift if it's freely offered and freely received. It's not based on your goodness. It's based on Christ. It's not based on what you think you can do. It's only him and him only. Have you ever put your faith in Jesus Christ as the one who died for you? Let's pray together. With heads bowed and eyes closed and one looking around. I would love to give you the opportunity this morning to make that decision if you've never trusted Christ. Perhaps you've come and Maybe for your entire life, you believed that if you were just good enough, maybe someday God would let you into heaven. And now you're understanding that that's not how God's going to work, that you have to be perfect, as perfect as he is.
And perhaps today you understand that you can have that perfection and it's found in Christ. And right where you sit, as you talk to God, you can talk to him in your mind. You don't have to say anything out loud. You can set this straight. You can trust Jesus Christ as your Savior today. And it's very simple. It's the understanding that the truth of the verse we kept looking at, Christ became sin. He took all of our sin upon himself. He paid for it completely. And he offers you his righteousness as a free gift. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone would boast. You cannot do something for a gift. You cannot give something for a gift. You just can receive it. Would you do that today? You might talk to God in your mind, and you may say something simple like this. You can't make a mistake. Lord, today I understand that Jesus Christ died and paid for everything I've done wrong. And I'm trusting him and him alone as my Savior. And I'm receiving his righteousness. I believe that he died. He rose again, proving that his payment was acceptable. And I'm trusting him only as my Savior. Would you do that? Lord, today I understand that Christ took all my sin. I'm receiving his gift of righteousness by faith. If you're doing that with heads bowed and eyes closed, no one looking around, I would love to pray for you in an anonymous way as we close our time. I'm not gonna have you come forward. I'm not gonna have you stand up. No one's gonna attack you afterwards. But if you're trusting Christ today, you made that decision, I would love to include you in the closing prayer. And so, if today that's what you've done, would you just slip your hand up and put it right back down? Anybody at all say, God bless you. Anybody else? Say, today I'm trusting Christ as my Savior. God bless you and you. You can put your hand down. Anybody else? This this morning I'm trusting Christ. God bless you. Put your hand down. You need to know that all heaven rejoices when someone makes that decision because you have now been brought into the family of God. And he says that he will never leave you or forsake you, that you belong to him forever. And I would ask that when we close today, if you've made that decision, maybe you'd come up and talk with one of the musicians or somebody who's down here to pray or somebody at the table. I'll be out in the lobby. would love to just talk with you about that. For those of you in relationships, I want to call you to what God's called you to. to set things in place to have life in your, in your marriages. That we would understand that we've been called to a different way, to give our lives away, not take life from other people. That we've been called in marriage to make our wife or our husband the greatest priority relationally and to invest and to know them, knowing that it will be the greatest benefit for our children that we would determine to look at our life and schedule and by God's grace, if needed, dial back. So the first part becomes true. If we say that that would be our priority, our marriage, we have to have space in our calendar for it to happen. Otherwise, we're just fooling ourselves. Gracious Father, we thank you 
that we rely on you to be our life and our light and everything that we need for godliness. Father, your Holy Spirit empowers us to do what we do not have the ability to do. And Father, for us to live out marriage in the way that you've designed and to know relationships in the ways that would most honor you and give us the greatest fulfillment, we have to be dependent upon you to do that. Lord, I thank you for these folks and their desire to know you, and I thank you for this congregation and uh, those that serve so much and give, and uh, Lord, how the impact in this, uh, this community is, is just ongoing and around the world. We thank you for that. But Lord, we want to be individually having our homes in place because it's the central place, and out of it will flow the next thing and the next thing and the next thing for your glory and purposes in Northern Virginia. So we give you praise today for all that's been accomplished. And Lord, we thank you for these who've indicated they, that they're trusting Christ today. Father, help them to understand that they now belong to you and they have the opportunity to now grow in who you are. And so, Father, I pray that they would take the time to talk with somebody this morning. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.